You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Right, hello and welcome to the latest podcast and we are going to talk about drum replacing and I'm very lucky to be here with Darren Williams from Drum Den Studios in the UK. Hello Darren. Hi Simon. And um, we're going to be talking about the whole magical, wonderful, sometimes dubious task of drum sound replacing. And first of all, Darren, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why we are talking today. We're talking about, well, from my perspective, I've been playing the drums since I was 13 years old. I'm 38 now, so I've been playing for probably 25 years. My background was mainly in jazz and big band stuff. I've had several West End shows. I've worked with named kind of pop artists. My first interest in the recording side of drums came from probably a friend that you know, who's sadly no longer with us, Chris Dagley. And he started to show me the importance of recording yourself. And in that stage, it was on mini discs. You know, I used to sit in with him on BBC big band gigs, pop sessions. And at that time, I couldn't drive. So... (laughs) You know, I don't know why, but he was like, yeah, OK, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you a lift. And, and obviously you go through the same thing of carrying his drums for him and, and all that stuff that everyone's always done when you, you know, you want to kind of hang out with your one of your uh, heroes and mentors. And he'd always record all of his gigs and he'd listen back to them in the car. So he'd mini disc his gigs and listen back and, and, and analyze them. And then sometimes he was such a perfectionist he'd go back to the studio at one two in the morning he practiced for three or four hours to try and iron out his perceived inconsistencies in his performance not only his performance but how he was interacting with everyone else and how what they did influenced him so that was kind of my first foray into in, into recording the drums and why it was important so he in that in that stage was using vst cubase vst he had a pc built for it for him he had a little drum, you know, uh, soundproof drum room in his flat in Pinner that it was it was completely silent. You, you couldn't hear, neighbours couldn't hear it. It was, you know, like four foot wide, you know, uh, thick uh, floors and ceilings. And it was an incredible um, insight into, you know, a, a pro guy. And that, as I say, that was the first time I was really got interested in it. And uh, he had his mate build me a PC. And I, you know, I started to incorporate that with just you know, some cheap AKG drum mics that I'd I'd got, the drum mic set that they did at the time, and and mainly just to get better at playing. And moving forward sort of 15 years, about seven or eight years ago, I got to the point where I needed to be a little bit more in control of what I did musically and just generally in career. And I I developed this passion. I took some time out and did a, a degree in audio engineering due to sort of having a few tendonitis problems. And I just wanted to do something that was not just purely drum-based. And then I decided that I wanted to set up a, a little kind of recording studio, um, which is about seven or eight years ago, and found a, a place sort of 20 minutes from my home and begged, borrowed and stilled and invested, you know, as much as money I had and NatWest would give me and <laughs> various other sources and credit cards and all the rest of it to build to, to build a little a drum room. And I was doing more, I, you know, Examples of me playing on a few pop tracks that were done, you know, remotely from my mum's from my mum's spare room that we converted. So, and a lot of guys are now doing that. Obviously, they have a remote um, facility that is used to go on on pop records. And with the way budgets are, they don't have thousands and thousands of pounds to record drums. So that was kind of part of the reason to to develop the studio. And it's where you're sitting now. 
It is, yeah. So we, we're talking about drum replacement, and drum replacement is a bit of a dark art, and people don't really know that much about it, unless you have been on the, the more engineering side of stuff. So I guess we ought to actually say what drum replacement is. What it comes down to is it doesn't necessarily mean that if you recorded your drum tracks with one drum kit, that those sounds that your drum kit make are the ones which are on the final production. Now, this could mean lots of things. It could mean, one, that the, the actual drum sounds are totally replaced. Your performance is replaced. A drum machine is programmed to play what you played, something, if you think about um, ABC, the lexicon of love. As I understand it, Dave Palmer recorded his drum tracks, and then Trevor Horn went through with an 808 and reprogrammed all of Dave's performance into the 808, but triggering other drum sounds. So that's the, that's a, a, a an example of a total replacement. So there's not even the, the same performance is on is on the final record. But it, it's what Dave originally wanted it to be, but Trevor reprogrammed it onto an 808. Or it might be just that, and this is what we're really getting at in this one, the drum sound, so the sound of your, I don't know, Pearl 22 by 16 bass drum might have been replaced electronically by a Slingland 24 by 16 or something like that. But it still sounds like you playing, but it's not the original sound. So it's like having, it's like recording a piano part on a MIDI keyboard and then replacing a piano sound afterwards. But we can do this with acoustic instruments and we can do this with, with acoustic drum sounds. Actually, very, very simply. Now, firstly, this isn't new. This goes back to the 1970s. The story goes that Steely Dan were recording in the studio with producer-engineer called Roger Nichols, and they were fed up with the drummer they were using, who is nameless, and the problem they were having is a take would be 99% perfect, but just one or two bass drum hits, for instance, might be slightly out, and they could hear it. And this was the days before digital, so you couldn't just go back and just nudge a couple of bass drum hits back into time they'd have to redo the whole take. And of course, the more takes the drummer does, the worse it gets. So it would, they were just really bashing their heads against getting a perfect drum take down. I think it was Walter turned round to Roger and went, oh, just can't you make something which just works, which just plays and does it right? So Roger Nichols went off and created something called Wendell. And Wendell was a drum sound replacement system where drummers could record tracks, then you'd play it through Wendell, and you could replace the sounds, but you could also start to move the drum hits around. So if one bass drum was out you could actually move it to the right place. And this is way ahead of anything else which was being done. And Wendell was a big system. It was a rack mount system with a keyboard, looked like a computer, very expensive. And then there was a, another, another version, a later version called Wendell Junior, which had fewer sounds, less facilities, but was much cheaper. But the most impressive thing about Wendell and Wendell Jr. was that they had a latency. So the time from when the, the computer wanted to do something to when it actually did it was only 350 microseconds. That's 0.3 of a millisecond. That's incredibly fast. That's probably just about as fast, or if not faster, than the sort of stuff we use now uh, to replace sounds. So you could play a drum sound into it, and it will play a replacement drum sound immediately, straight away, without any delay. And if you listen to something like Hey 19 on Gaucho by Steely Dan, you'll hear Rick Marotta's performance, and he's credited for it, but you'll hear the drum sounds of Wendell. 
and they've tweaked the drum performance so that it's you know perfect. So this is where it all came from. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast. To make your experience with electronic drums effortless, subscribe to eDrumInfo.com. So I think that covers the basics, Darren. What have you got to say about drum replacement? I think drum replacement is is useful in a few different aspects. The way I use it is to enhance pre-recorded drums, which I've recorded personally or someone I know has recorded. Not always the case. Sometimes people will bring you stuff and we're not happy with the way the drums are recorded and they haven't got the time or inclination to um, to re-record them. But I would say that a lot of on a lot of occasions, it's the lack of pre-production that is the problem because they don't actually know what the drum should sound like in the first place. What recorded drums sound like in a room and from bare tracking is very different to what they end up sounding like on a record. So the amount of post-production um, that goes on, I and mean, we think you're like guitarists that go through huge pedal boards with all these effects to affect their tones. I think it's a, you know it's a, it's akin to that. The processing that goes on on a, on a drum kit to make a snare drum sound like what you think a snare drum sounds like on a record is not the reality of what it sounds like with a 57 stuck on it in a room. It just doesn't sound like that. And working with engineers, I've tried to you know to, to steal off drums. I think are probably the most pre-EQ'd instrument at the tracking stage. There's not many toms that don't get EQ'd. <laughs> Maybe on some jazz things, but pretty rare. So often the replacement side of it is, is to enhance the elements of the kit when they don't work within the within the mix. There might be other instruments being added and the snare drum doesn't cut like you want it to in the chorus, or it's affect the key of the song, the snare drum's not working with it, and people want to either replace it or just enhance it so it fits in the mix much better. So what we're talking about is taking the original drum tracks as recorded by an engineer. Let's face it, everyone uses basically computers nowadays. You have those on your computer. You run them through a program which allows you to replace your, say, Gretsch 22 by 14 kick with a uh, Slingerland 24 by 16 or whatever. So you can completely replace the sound. So it'll be the original performance, but it'll just be a different drum sound. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you know, within obviously I use Logic and Pro Tools. Within Logic, you can it, it will duplicate. It will take all of the audio information and convert that into a MIDI a MIDI signal, which then you know you can trigger whatever you want from. And if you want to trigger a 24 inch Slingerland bass drum, then you know you can. This can be used anyway, can't it? I mean, because obviously we're talking to you in in your studio. We would suggest that the drum tracks are going to be more studio recorded tracks. But I mean, I've seen this done with basically rough stereo mixes of a drum kit playing in a room. I mean, so this could be anything, couldn't it? It's not. We're not just talking expensive studios here. We're talking anything. As I say, I think most most records you hear will have samples on. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Or, you know, been enhanced. It's very common to have three or four bass drum samples because that's the sound that they want to go for at mm. the end of the day. Yeah. And it's it's, it's time. It's a, it takes a lot longer to mic up that one bass drum. You know, imagine you're micing up one kick drum and then you want to bring in another one, you know, bring in a different size or a different make with a different head on it. But with the drum replacement, you can use that original, that core, that core sound and then enhance it with a with a you know yeah with a 22 inch with a with a um, 
a fiber skin on it or a different head or a different tone and people have always been doing that you know you know electronic drums have been blending samples for, for donkey's years and it's just taking that kind of idea and bring it into more modern production but surely a lot of people would be saying well why do you actually need to get into this in the first place i've talked to, to sort of producers and engineers about this and they always say the same thing they're like well you've, you've got the ability to record your drums so why are you getting into all this and i, I it's kind of like well i'm not sure <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I mean, do we actually need to do this? But it's it's sort of expected now, isn't it? If you are if you're gonna if you're producing a track and you're giving it to a a, a company of some sort, they're going to expect it to sound as LA as possible, aren't they? I think it's just it's the it's the reality of time. So the way in which the the, the money tree dribbles down is that if you're a record company and you go to you know producer A and say right, we have a budget of sixty thousand pounds out of that budget. Is your is your fee for producing these ten tracks? That producer is then receives that money into their bank account, and then has to pay Simon Edgeus to program drums, Darren Williams to mix it, all the rest of it. So suddenly it's coming out of their pocket. So it's actually more economical in terms of time for them to to either program the drums or or get someone to do it remotely and then use elements of it, then it is to say, okay, I'm going to book a top London studio like Angel, for example, and a, you know, a session drummer, if you will, you know, for three hours. So all inclusive is probably going to cost something in the region of a thousand pounds, maybe something like that. So suddenly that's a grand out of your budget, which is basically a grand out of your money. And that's how it's all, I think it's changed because before, obviously you, you know, you invoice, it was the fixer or the record company. So it wasn't, that producer's money pot that they're looking at on their screen and saying, right, I've actually got to physically give that person the money now. I think that's a, a huge, and this is quicker for them to fix something using a sample than it is to, to record it right in the first place. It's a textual thing. What are you looking for? You might want the sound of a snare drum, but blended with, you know, a different sample instrument. And I think that's pretty much the way it is nowadays is it's, it's very rarely just a drum kit. I mean, I know certain rock things or whatever, but, you know, most of the time it's a blend of, of, of real drums and enhancement. Ah, oh, now you've brought up the matter of enhancement. That's something else completely, isn't it? Um, we were talking about that before the interview started. Uh, and as we were talking about triggering white noise, for example, I mean, that big 80s snare drum sound that everyone associates with, it's it's not a snare drum. <laughs> it's, it may have been triggered or blended with a snare drum. And I learned this from a producer friend of mine called Steve Anderson, who obviously works with huge pop artists like Kylie Minogue and Leona Lewis. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And these were tricks that, I, that he basically told me. <laughs> so, you know, everyone, you know, is, is giving off their, you know, their, their knowledge. But basically, yeah, you would you would set up a white noise generator. You would send the, the, the snare drum, bust the snare drum to the white noise, gate the white noise. And obviously when you hit the snare drum, that would open the gate on the white noise channel and you get that. And you could change the, you know, the 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 envelope of the sound, the attack or the sustain or whatever, to to blend with the, with the song, and then you would generally you would send um, uh, the reverb from the white noise channel, and that's how you got that kind of huge eighties snare drum sound and if you want to hear a really good example of the white noise behind the snare drum thing um if you listen to the original every breath you take by the police you can hear if you've got good speakers or good headphones you can hear the burst of white noise sitting behind 
the snare drum. And then I suppose for your archetypal big 80s drum sound on other stuff, listen to things like REO Speedwagon with that you know massive snare drum in a warehouse type sound. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, some of the rooms that they recorded it in, it may be that and they often would, you know, would mic the lobby and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the lobby mics would be gated. And it, it when the snare drum was activating those lobby mics, the, the snare would go, pow, you know, um, but it's an extension of the same idea. The same with the toms, you know, all of those 80s tom things would be, would be triggered from maybe the original or just from a drum machine or whatever. So it's definitely, there's the two different streams here, aren't there? There's the total replacement or the blending, which is what you've just mentioned there. I think the majority of the time, you know, because we were talking about before, the human the human feel, having someone play drums and recorded well, it's pretty awesome. But that and then enhanced and blended with, with samples is often the way it's, it goes, I think. If you if you just replace it, I think you lose you know that the dynamics of the of the player, the more the excitement of it, really, the inconsistencies of it. So Wendell was really expensive, but now all this technology is available to us on basically any sort of studio software, any DAW, isn't it? So if you've got um, you know, Ableton or Logic or Reaper or Pro Tools, it's all available now included, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the logic the logic one, you know, you can bring up a drummer track, it's phenomenal. What you what you know, the value for money is just it's, it's un, you know, unbelievable. Um, you just want some hand claps, for example. You know, it's just a case of bringing up another instrument track, loading in the the new drummer, soft you know software that it's called. Find the clap sample and then duplicate the snare drum track. Take the take the ones out that you want to keep and put the claps on it. So if you've got the claps on two and four in the chorus and it's taking you thirty seconds to do it, it's you know it's incredible. How do you use it? I mean, you use, at the moment, you use Slate Trigger, is that correct? So generally, I will use Slate Trigger, yeah. It, it's really useful because it, you're talking about multi-layered samples, and I think that's the key to getting a sound that's a bit more realistic with Slate. It allows you, generally, if you if you choose you know, a Black Beauty snare drum, it'll come with the top mic, the bottom mic, an effects mic, a room mic, an overhead mic of that snare drum so you can get a real a real nice blend and it sounds yeah it sounds realistic it's just really easy to use if you want to tune the drum up you know maybe the it needs to go up a tone or whatever again it's just a slider to go up a tone and the, you know you can just suddenly you you fixed your snare drum within a minute and again it's, it's it's more often than not you're using that because this lack of pre-production that the, 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 the snare drum has been recorded without any thought and it, and it can from my perspective obviously as a drummer if you get to work with other drummers it's an amazing opportunity and if you've got the time and the you know the md you're working with or the band will allow you that time then it's it's the way in which that snare drum interacts with the rest of the kit you know it's it could be that on a certain song you know the hi-hats are just way too bright so that will obviously in turn affect the sound of the guitars. It will affect the sound of synthesizers or piano and vice versa. So if you get those things right at the source, you won't have to do a lot of this stuff. But the way in which things are done now, it's very much one man on his own in his project studio that's programming everything. So you're having to, make, you're having to fix stuff sonically that perhaps if you'd have recorded it right in the first place, you might not have to do. But that's because my background is always going to be from more of an acoustic side of it. If it's if, if you want, you know, hi hats that are, are 
essentially recreating a, a sound of an electronic hi-hat thing, then you program it <laughs> because that's what it was in its original form. But if you, you know, if you're if you're playing a rock thing and you've got the the snare drum is just badly tuned, sometimes it's quicker to replace it than it is to to try and fix it with EQ and compression. And and the artifacts of that often are, are a nice thing. So it's it's sonically better to just replace it. So what, when you just mentioned artifacts, then what you mean is so if you've got the original snare sound as recorded onto tape or disc or whatever, and it's not fitting so the more you eq it the more you compress it the more you're actually changing the sound and you're probably not making it any nicer are you i just making it worse yeah it's very difficult to get it to to fit a square peg in a round hole exactly you you, you know you know people probably will probably do that but again it comes down to time and i would spend you know i'd duplicate the snare drum i'd detune you know i'd detune it then i'd put a gate on it then i'd eq it and in the end, I still couldn't get it to work. But it's like a challenge, and you get into you, you disappear up the rabbit war and say, "No, I'm going to make that original recorded snare sound in this track. It's the last thing I do all day." But the reality is now, I just bring up Slate Trigger, and if it doesn't work, I try a next sample, try a next one, and then as soon as it works, it's like it's taking you a minute of your life, and you can focus on more important parts of the track. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast. So, I mean, so when it comes to you, you would have uh, the kick uh, on one channel, the snare on another channel, and you would just run a different instance on each channel, triggering whichever sample you wanted. You can use it in different ways. I mean, you can you can either use the blend control within Trigger, which means you can instantiate it as an insert, and yep. then you use the blend control so you're you're using you know, 20% of the original sound or 80% of the original sound, whatever you want. And then obviously the, the remaining amount of the, of the sample. I generally use it, I'll duplicate the track and then I'll have it 100% on the duplicated mm. track and then use that as a blend. And then bring it up on the fader. Too. Separate fader, yeah. And as I mentioned, it works really well when you're sending, if you want to use effects, especially from snare drum. So you can, I'll always send, not always, but most of the time, send the reverb from the duplicated replaced track because it's just cleaner. Talking of clean, this brings up the next bit. What about cymbals? Can you sound replace cymbals? I'm sure you can. Well, yes, you can. You can. Again, this, yes, you can, because, you, again, it comes down to pre-production. The number of times where... You know, you have it. You have someone's got four or five toms, and you're like, "Do you play the toms in this song?" No. Oh, <laughs> well, should we take them off? And they look at you like you're an idiot. Especially with toms, you get sympathetic resonances every time you hit the kick drum or the snare. You know, obviously they will they will ring. That's what drums do. And sometimes that ring is really nice, and it makes the drum sound bigger. And sometimes it really conflicts with the other instruments that are going on. So more often than not, you will take the tom. You know, if you're not playing the toms, take the toms off. And it's the same with the cymbals. You've, I've done things where the engineer will just take the cymbals off, and then you'll play cymbals separately. So it goes back to how do you how do you perceive the kit? Do you perceive, perceive it as a whole, or do you perceive it as a selection of instruments? And that's you know that's the subjectivity and the aesthetic of whatever the song is you're going to produce and also it depends i guess on the music as well because i mean the whole thing about recording the drums first and then recording the cymbals second what a that started with sort of uh peter gabriel didn't yeah. it i mean well i don't think it started with him but he was well known for recording the drums then the cymbals separately with the modern sort of metal and stuff like that that it's very much done record the kicks record the snares record the toms whatever record the cymbals afterwards drum sound re- replace 
pretty much everything, even though you've recorded them separately in the first place. The style allows that to happen. And like you know, we were saying before about having a having a having a player play electronic drum kit sends you the MIDI information, and then later down the line, if you want to assign a different sound to it, it's very very quick to do. Or you want to change tempo. I want to change the tempo by five BPM. Oh, it's all right. We've record, we've spent five grand recording all the drums, and obviously you can you can manipulate you know the audio to a different tempo, but it never sounds the same. No. With actual drum uh, sound replacement software, I mean it, it's been around. Uh, the actual software has been around for a long time. Obviously, the first one that was sort of commercially available, to my knowledge, was the Avid, or it was DigiDesign back then, uh, the sound replacer, which came as part of Pro Tools. Yeah. But, I mean, that was the original, but it was always seen as very expensive because you had to have Pro Tools, which was not cheap at the time. And then, to my knowledge, the next one which came along, which was much cheaper, was something called Drummagog. Yeah. And Drummagog seemed brilliant but for me when i last looked at it which admittedly was a long time and it's still going now and it's still selling very well uh you had to use gog files which were their own sample uh format which always seemed to be a very enclosed system so you couldn't sort of it wasn't as flexible did you use drumagog you've used it i didn't really use drumagog the way i often would use samples again before trigger came along and there are some as we talked about before the physics of it but um, often when you create um, you know when you use audio to midi sometimes the midi is not as accurate it doesn't know where the transient is and it gets confused with what's a main you know ghost stroke or not or obviously sometimes in the snare drum mic it may be that the toms are, tr- are being are triggering something um so i found it easier to tap to, to the transient of the snare drum or the tom or whatever it may be so in pro tools there's just a it's just a key command where you can move the 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 cursor point down so it's exact and then and then i will apple v so you know paste in the sample that i've that i've chosen and then that way you get a completely phase accurate at this point we're actually going to go and talk about phase now phase is incredibly important if you're recording any instrument so if you want a detailed explanation of what phase is and how it affects us drummers, then stay listening. If you don't want to, then skip forward six and a half minutes. Darren, now would be a, a, an ideal opportunity. Can you just explain briefly, if it is possible, about what phase is? Absolutely, yeah. It's a very complex subject, which I certainly won't profess to knowing the science in too much depth. But I've uh, consulted higher powers, uh, namely Steve Jenowick, who's a friend of mine, an engineer who's based at Capital Records in L.A. I had the pleasure of being on a course in the south of France last summer, which is called Mix with the Masters, which is essentially a residential course that's run in a beautiful studio just south of Avignon called Studio La Fabrique. And they run week-long seminars with world-class engineers, mainly from America, but a lot of British guys as well. Uh, Tom Elmhurst, Eddie Kramer, Paul Epworth may have done some. You know, big big names who basically, you know, talk through their, their concepts and normally will bring a lot of their projects so you can break it down and also help you. But cut a long story short, phase obviously comes up a lot. In essence, there's two sorts. You've got an electrical phase and acoustic phase. So... With electrical, on most of preamps or mixing desks, there's a button which is like a zero with a, with a line through it. Uh, as far as I understand, that's actually called polarity, which is switching the phase relationship 180 degrees. So if, if you have a positive waveform, when you press that switch, that will invert the phase of the waveform 
180 degrees and it will be the direct opposite of it. So when you're pressing that button on a console or on a preamp, it's flipping it by 180 degrees. So it's basically, if you imagine a waveform on a, on a screen, you're basically just flipping it upside down. So what was above the line before is now below. Exactly, yeah. So the line is neutral. And obviously everything above the line is a positive, everything below the line is a negative. And I think they're called compression and rarefaction. That's the extent of my physics knowledge. But it's basically pushing air one way and pushing air the other way. If you think of it another way, it's actually whether the speaker cone is coming out towards yeah. you or or going away from you as it's shaking very, very fast. Exactly. And you can think of that as a diaphragm of a microphone on the drums. Yeah. So what you're aiming for on the drums, if we go into an acoustical phase, Acoustical phase is time is time based. So when you put more than one microphone on, on a source, uh, the waveforms are going to arrive at the, the microphones at different times. There's going to be milliseconds or obviously it's dependent on on distance. So on the drums, if you've got, for example, eight microphones and you hit the snare drum, the sound of that snare drum is going to arrive at the different microphones um, at different times. So the aim is to make sure that when you bring up each channel, you don't lose low end or it becomes hollow. That's a classic kind of case of when there's there's phase issues. Correct me if I'm wrong. That means that if you've got the same signal going to two microphones and they're out of phase, uh, when one microphone is going in, the other microphone is going out. And when you add them together, they'll actually cut, cancel some of the frequencies out. That's what you mean about the hollowness. It's not quite as exact as that because that will only work if you use a sine wave because sine wave has no harmonics. So what normally happens, they describe it as constructive and destructive phase. So at some points, frequencies will be added and at some point, frequencies will be taken away. The further the microphone is away, generally, as the, as the waveforms progress in, within time, you get frequencies being added and subtracted. The idea is that you want to minimize that as much as you can. But you can't get rid of it. So if you take an orchestra or a big band, for example, you will have, you know, phase shift, which is, you know, the waveforms on the different instruments arriving at the microphones at different times. So it seems that especially with the, you know, the advent of, of, of seeing all the waveforms on the screen, everyone is obsessed with, with having the waveforms bang in phase or starting at exactly the same point in time, which with bass instruments, that's, that can sometimes work out really well because you have a really punchy, strong low end. Where it kind of falls foul a little bit is that waveforms have different, obviously the cycles of a three kilohertz waveform is much shorter than a 300 hertz one, for example. So if you, if you align everything to start at the same point, as you progress in time, it comes undone because people think that the waveforms are going to stay the same all the way through, but they don't due to the fact that the wavelengths are different. So phase is an important part of creating a, 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 the chorusing effect or making the, the, the band or the orchestra or whatever it is sound bigger. And it's the leakage from other instruments into other people's mics, which perhaps are 30 feet away in an orchestra, for example, or the, the conductor's mics that are over his head. It's that leakage and that time delay the milliseconds we're talking about or the phase that is constructive and therefore makes the orchestra sound as we, as we know it, in a concert hall it's, it's the sound of the violin is not arriving at your ear at the same time as the percussion for example but as long as in, in a recording situation that is not destructive i.e taking frequencies away that we want then it's fine and that's why an orchestra sounds like an orchestra so it's it's constructive it's with the drums it's when it, it's destructive. So frequencies are being removed that you actually want in there. So normally, as I say, you if, you, if you're, you're hitting the snare drum, you want to make sure that that 
in the overheads sounds full. So if you flip the phase switch on your preamp, if you've got good phase, it should sound hollow because you flipped it. That's the kind of main premise of it. And most people will measure the distance from their snare drum to both overheads to make sure that the snare, because it's normally in the center of a mix, they will measure that and, and make it equidistant. So there's, the sound of the snare is arriving at the overheads at the same point. And you basically do that for all of the drums and making sure that you don't lose frequencies. And it's, it's more pronounced on low end, essentially. It's basically what it comes down to is the more microphones you have on a drum kit, the more problems you're going to have with face. Yeah. If you were doing the classic Motown thing of having a single mic over the drum kit, it'll probably sound great and it'll sound very natural and realistic. You add in another mic, then you might start to have issues. And the more mics you have, the more issues you have. You normally, you'll normally find that some mics on the kit will sound better out of phase. Yeah. Because it, for the bass drum, for example, it's just like, where, where are you taking the point from? It's very difficult. Most people will take it from the beta, but you've got sound resonating from the, the entire drum. So more often than not, the, the bass drum will be out of phase with the overheads. But often people high pass overheads, so it doesn't really matter because <laughs> you're not using the overheads for the for the bass drum sound. So if you're high passing it, it doesn't matter so much. But I will always try and get it as close as I can, so it sounds full and rich. And going back to we talked about samples, a lot of people will, will phase check their samples if they're putting them in with their original kit as well. And sometimes people will move them around. I, I suppose adding a sample is like adding another microphone. So you might have a you may have a phase issue if you need if it doesn't sound right when you're adding the sample. Just flip it 180 degrees, and hopefully all those missing frequencies will come back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast. To make your experience with electronic drums effortless, subscribe to eDrumInfo.com. So to get back to the products, there's lots of stuff on the market, isn't there? I mean, I just I spent two minutes just going through stuff. There's also things like SPL Drum Exchanger, which I know is used by a lot of people. The Massey DTR, again, is something that seems to be very heavily used in the States more so than over here. I don't know many people who use it over in Europe. But then the first one, which I just want to have a little bit more of a closer look at, is Addictive Trigger, yeah. uh, which is XLN Audio who do addictive drums. And... If you know uh, Addictive Drums, you know, it's a great sound library. Um, it, it just seems to work. It's, it's a real lovely, lovely sound library. And I downloaded the demo of Addictive Trigger just to sort of test it before I had this conversation with Darren. And I've got to say, I was slightly blown away with it. It was, A, incredibly quick. Um, I replaced the bass drum, snare drum, and toms in a three-minute track. It totally to my satisfaction in 12 minutes which i've never done anything quite that fast before and it was yeah it was it was great a couple of things which i found very very clever one as it listens to the drum track it generates a midi track which has got all the trigger information in it you need so at the end of the drum track once you've played through the track once you can just drag and drop this midi file into superior or something else uh, slate or whatever yeah. And it works incredibly well. The downside of, of Addictive Trigger is you can't load your own samples into it. It's only the, the Addictive library. But to be honest, for most people, that's not going to be a problem. Obviously, it's like all of these things. You just buy a, di you know, a different kit. And a lot of the stuff I do, you know, you may, for example, stuff that goes on to some American cruise ships is that one, one track will be an orchestral um, crossover 
um, piece. But the next minute, it's an Amy Winehouse track. And the beauty of, you know, one of some of these pieces of software is that you can then go to a, a kit that was recorded in, you know, in a in the Dapkin studio or mo, you know, Motown, one of the Motown rooms or wherever. And you know, all of these places have recorded these great sample libraries, and they sound incredible. You know, so I think it's it's ease of use and the, the quickness that you can get the sounds is incredible. A lot of um, sort of MDs that have it at home, they'll program stuff up. Um, either they've had a drummer record it and send them the MIDI data, or they've programmed it themselves. But the main benefit I think of having something like that, again, is sound design. Things change all the time, so it may be that there's different um, synths go on top of it, guitars, and all sorts of things that get added after it's been um, originally uh, programmed. So having the the ability to just change a snare drum, to just tune it up or down by a semitone or whatever it may be, just little things like that. And um, with the, the different options that you've got, different styles, you know, different depths of drums, different um, materials, all that kind of stuff. And not just snare drums, bass drums, toms, whatever, you know, it's it's so useful and you can just make these changes very, very, very quickly. That's the main benefit for me is if it's not working in the track, don't spend hours trying to fix it. Just bring in a different sample up or down whatever you want to do and, and it's going to work great i mean that's the thing if you've got a really good sound library to begin with which you have in something like um, addictive drums then yeah. then you've got options which is what you need isn't it you don't yeah if a drummer just came into a studio with one snare you'd be going ah, okay um but if you've got something like addictive drums or, or superior or whatever else you've got a shed load of options and then you can start getting into the tuning and all that sort of thing yeah really intuitive um you know the interface is so good you know you can teach anyone to use it you know you can the, the images of the actual drum are so amazing that you know exactly what it is straight away and one other thing I've got to mention here is while we've actually been editing this tune track have announced superior drummer 3 which has a built-in drum replacement software package i've actually got a copy of it but unfortunately i haven't had enough time to cast my eyes over it properly before this went out but it looks very very good at first glance so that's another one to bear in mind the next one i was going to mention was uh, something called App Trigger 3 uh, by Applesoft. And this is, um, again, they, these all these programs all run in the same way. App, uh, the App Trigger 3 doesn't look as, to my eyes, doesn't look as, as funky as Addictive Trigger, which has got all the drums and all that sort of stuff. But it's got some incredibly clever uh, features in it, which I, I haven't found in anything else. Obviously, you can use your own multi-layer samples. But the thing that I found particularly good was you can... Well, basically, with all trigger replacement software, you can plug in a microphone into your audio interface, you can hit the microphone, and you can trigger a sample from the software. So you can put the microphone in your bass drum, hit your bass drum, and it'll trigger a sound out of your computer if you wanted to. It's a little bit overkill, but that's possible. But what I found very good with the app trigger was it gives you the option to record your own multi-layer sample. So you hit basically hit record, and then you play your nice expensive snare drum at lots of different, different dynamics, and the software will chop it at the transient uh, and create a multi-layer sample so that when you are replaying your recorded drums back through uh, App Trigger, 
you've got the sound you've just recorded, which can be recorded in the same room. And it's, it's incredibly good. Yeah. So quick. It might, the thing with Aptrig, it might not be quite so intuitive, but the actual feature set is, is really, really strong. And it's actually uh, one of the least expensive ones on the market as well. Yeah. So if, if you want to get into it quickly, uh, I would say that's probably the way forward. Depending on what genre of music you know you work in, I think all of these yeah. are, it's not a better or worse. It's just that 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 be, might be more uh, useful for someone who's, you know, again creating their own soundscape. Yeah. For me, it's always going to be hope because I have a, the ability to record live drums. It's always going generally going to be uh, to enhance what's already there, or as we mentioned before. Um, with addictive drums you've got the ability to just load in some hand claps load in uh, um, some electronic drums some 808 kicks or snares or whatever it may be stuff that's iconic you know that people have heard i did a whitney you know a whitney houston thing recently you know and you, you get those toms up you know and they're already there <laughs> and i've got obviously a set of roland v drums um, connected to the to the computer so if i want to be you know if i want to just pretend i'm playing in whitney's houston's band then i'll uh i'll just i'll play them in but you know we do it on the keyboard or whatever but what you can't actually see is darren is actually doing this in the background on the screen at the moment <laughs> yeah. um yeah no uh, yeah i mean it, it's it is it, it, the power that we have now to do all this is just is, yeah. is just ridiculous um but then the last one out of the three i just wanted to mention is the slate trigger which you use and now for me, anyway, the slate samples are a bit of a marmite thing. You either like them or you don't like them. They are, they seem, they do seem to just fit in any mix, though. I mean, what's your take on the sounds? Well, uh, I've got all of the Chris Lord Algae ones and the Trigger Dulux and whatever it comes with. Um, again, I think it's because of the ability to blend all of the different microphones. You were talking about they they are. Um, velocity uh, sensitive which is good so some of the earlier ones as you mentioned because they don't have so many layers within them it sounds a bit more obviously triggered whereas with these because yeah they've been sampled a thousand times and then you've got the ability to have the room mic which is 30 feet away and the overheads the ability to blend the sound is is pretty awesome and it's very quick Again, it's just very, very quick, and you know instantly whether it, you know you're you're on the right path, and it just needs a little bit of tweaking. Yeah, I might want to tune it up a little bit or tune it down. It's brilliant. Um, a lot of the you know, um, pieces of software where that where you, you lose the ghosted strokes that we talked about. Again, it's got a, a re-trigger knob. You can tweak that until it it will re-trigger for the ghosted strokes. You know, sometimes in solo, it maybe doesn't sound as as great as a drummer, but it sounds again blended in. It sounds pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, that's the thing. The there's the slate sounds. They are, I wouldn't say they're the most characterful sounds, but they just they fit. They just work in a mix. I mean, I haven't found a single slate kit that just doesn't work in the right context. And ultimately, that's what you. That's what it's about. You know, it's about getting the thing that fits in the mix quite quickly. So yeah, for me, that's just like you say, it's an industry standard thing, and you can argue about all of these things until the cows come home, but. You know, and you get the same d dilemmas about you know DAWs. Pro Tools is the most used around the world, and that's it. It's not necessarily better than any others or whatever, but it is what it is. 
And ultimately, there are people who are amazing on every piece of software, and it comes down to speed. How well do you know your piece of software as opposed to what it's called? This has cropped up in previous podcasts about you know what would be the one piece of advice you would give people, and it would. Uh, quite a few people have said, know the gear. And on this occasion, absolutely know your software because, I mean, as far as I see it, you know, drum replacement is like a saw. It can either be incredibly creative or it can be really, really damaging depending on what you do with it. And you yeah. can kill a really nice drum track by sticking something really insensitive over the top of it. Yeah, but it's just that it's just that ease of, of, of having plenty of choices in front of you and you can, rather than spending an hour trying to perfect that badly recorded snare drum, you can find something... Again, because of the dynamic range, we, you know, we're dealing with essentially pop and you know commercial music, for want of a better word, electronic music. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't work so well in jazz or big band music. Uh, although you listen to some of the Michael Bublé stuff, and anything that's got a backbeat in it, there's plenty of there's plenty of programming and and, and sample replacement going on in that. I'll tell you now. Actually, now we've uh, now you've mentioned Michael Bublé, then that leads us on to the next thing. I mean, uh, there's a quote I've written down on my notes here, uh, which is uh, which is something I, I must admit I, I w- ripped off Wikipedia. So apologies to whoever first said it. Um, Drum replacing is often mentioned along with autotune, harmonizers, and advanced compressors as being symptomatic of the artificial nature of modern Western music by certain critics. Which, yes, I could sort of see, that, you know. Um, the whole Michael Bublé thing is taking a big band and sticking it through auto-tune and uh, um, well, not necessarily the instruments but the vocals and, and making it much more pop-orientated is is what we're doing with drum replacement software. Is it is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. Where do you see it going? I mean, where do you see this whole thing um, as far as recording and, and sound replacing and, and uh, doing multiple jobs like being the drummer on the session, the engineer and the producer and everything else, where is it going? Because is it just going? It's we know it's going down this route because of speed. Yeah. And of- I mean, for me, there's no better feeling than, than making music with other musicians. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's why we all got into it. But the realities of budgets are that you know, top UK drummers that we all know have their own studios and have the ability to record drum tracks that are on Grammy award-winning albums. So I think it's pretty empowering. Um, and it means that everyone can can get involved. You don't have to go to a big London studio anymore, or wherever you are in the world. You don't have to. I get stuff from a, um, a friend of mine called Louis Palmer, who's a phenomenal drummer. Phenomenal. Lives in now lives in LA. He's got a little room in Hollywood Hills. He records through a Moto 828. He sends me the stems sounds mega because he's a mega musician and he gets it right at source um and you could spend a hundred thousand pounds on trying to get that uh signal path a bit better but it wouldn't it wouldn't be proportionate to the to the amount of money you've spent and i think that's the thing that's changed in the last you know 10 years or so you see you can get if you're a good player and you know what you're doing you can deliver a product that you know you couldn't have done pre-digital for not for you cost you a fortune anyway you spend a couple of grand now you can get a good drum mic set get yourself a laptop and you can record drums that will appear on on record grammy award-winning records around the world whereas i don't think you could have done that perhaps you know 20 years ago you'd have to you'd have to go to a studio to do it you're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. 
Subscribe to eDrumInfo.com.